right, everybody, we're going to get started. Good morning. Good to see you. Let's recenter our hearts and our minds upon the person of Jesus today in the midst of a busy week, in the midst of things, of everything that would distract us, that would keep our eyes upon him. So let's take these next couple of moments to do that, to remember which is supremely important, to remember which is eternal. Can you stand with us as we begin? We're going to begin in Colossians 1 today. Colossians 1, chapter 27 and 29, or verses 27 through 29. Paul is talking here about, he's talking to the church, but then he's, and this very first word says, to them, he's talking to the saints that God has made known to the saints. Can we say this together as it's on the screen? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In these next couple of moments, let's celebrate that wonderful mystery, that wonderful reality, that Christ is our hope today and will be forever. Above the storm, it's right. 
who sends the waves that bring us now into the shore, the rock of
law was not removed, it was fulfilled. The prayers of all the prophets now revealed in the image of the Father. The yes of every promise, the law was not removed. Oh, praise the Lamb who takes away my sin. He tore the veil, now I can enter in for all my days, my soul will praise Him. Oh, praise the one, oh, praise the one with scars in His hands, oh, praise the Son who died and rose again. Jesus on the cross as far as east and west as far as east and west I see his righteousness my sins are now removed oh my sins are now removed oh praise the Lamb who takes away my sins For Romans 8, verses 18 through 30, it's a little lengthy, but as I read this this morning, this is a passage for those who wait, for the, the sojourners, for those who are on the journey, let this be of encouragement. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In these last three verses, can we say these out loud? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also so thankful this morning that for those who love God all things work together for good he is sovereign over all creation and he is sovereign over his people over our lives every detail of our life so with this next song let us proclaim this to God but also remind ourselves of the goodness of who God is and his willingness and his power to accomplish all that he desires in us. Sing this together. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our morning. love that cast out fear you're working in our waiting you are working in our waiting sanctifying us when beyond our understanding you're teaching us to trust your plan your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the blood. You are faithful forever and perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You are wisdom. 
are my delight Lord let your promises what you have to say be what our hope is in 
above all else. Remind us of your goodness, of your steadfastness. Lord, that you are in control. We love you and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, you can be seated. Um, just want to do, uh, we're not going to dismiss kids yet. We just want to sing one last song, just a kind of a sit and soak song and meditate. Um, this is just out of Colossians 1. This is just Colossians 1 set to scripture, verses 16 through 17. all things together. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation. By Him all things were created, heaven and earth, seen and unseen. Rulers, dominions, or powers and kings. He holds all things, all things, all things together. He holds all things, all things, all things together. He's the head of the body, the church.
kids can be dismissed this morning. I believe it is ages four through six this morning. Ages four through six can be dismissed. morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. If you're interested in having an outline, I've got some on the back table. It will have sort of the points of my sermon, and on the back you'll have the supporting verses that I'm using today written out there for you. One of the songs that we sang talked about the fact that the law was not removed, it was fulfilled. That's a really important point. Uh, it's, It's Especially so when we're about to study a text that is filled with commands. Okay, so when we as believers approach the scriptures, we have to bear in mind that the law is not just a whole bunch of rules that God really likes and that to save us, He threw away the list of rules that he really likes so that we could be with him. Okay, God is holy and he's just, righteous. The law is an expression of his character. Okay, this is like God, for God to throw the law away would be for God to cease to be God because the law says what God is like. It teaches his people about his holy character. And so there's a huge problem if God wants to be righteous and then justify people who have violated not only the law, but because the law is an expression of his character, they've actually offended him. They've affronted him. They have violated his character. Okay? There's a huge problem for God to justify people who have done that. And that's why Jesus is such good news. Because... He fulfilled what we could not so that God could maintain every ounce of his just and holy righteous character and still declare righteous those who have offended his holy righteous just character by sending his son to live a righteous life. And then to be slaughtered on a cross that he did not deserve, but that we deserve. And to raise him from the dead. This is the work, the atoning work that Jesus came to accomplish. And therefore, in us, though we are ungodly, the law is reckoned to be fulfilled. So satisfying was Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection that his death can count as an offering for all who would believe. So when we come to a text like Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 6 that is full of commands, we have to remember this is not a way for us to earn anything from God. This is not a way for us to get anything from God or to appease Him 
right? This is an invitation into the life that God wants his people to live. And it will please our heavenly father. And a believer wants to please his heavenly father, her heavenly father. Okay, that's what we're getting at here. And so um, in, in giving these commands, I believe that the author of Hebrews is actually taking these commands to our hearts and talking about our loves. So in, in, for three different words in, this, in these six verses, um, you've heard the word Philadelphia before, doubtless, right? There's a city called that. There's a church in our community called Philadelphia. And that word, like the city of Philadelphia, is the city of brotherly love. And it's a compound Greek word. Philo, which is love. Adelphoi, brothers, love of brothers. Okay? We're going to actually see three times in this text that one of the words in the original language starts with phil, P-H-I-L, not the guy's name, but love. Okay? He's getting at rightly ordered loves for us. And so again, it's not, this is not just a list of do's and don'ts. This is these are invitations into life. These are what, what the sort of life is that God wants his people to live. And they're getting at the loves that exist in our heart as believers. He wants us to have rightly ordered love. So part of what it means to endure to the end from the book of Hebrews. Part of what it means as we saw last week, to serve or worship God with reverence and awe, part of what that means is having rightly ordered loves. Okay? Part of what it means to endure and to serve God with reverence and awe is to have rightly ordered loves. So, stand with me and let's read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, if you are on our side though an army encamp against us, we can maintain our confidence firm to the end because you possess all power and all knowledge and all ability and all wisdom. So we want to entrust ourselves to you. We pray that in this time, as we look into these commands, that you would help us to do so from a position of being covered by the blood of Christ. Let us do so. Let us look at these 
commandments from the position of justified believers. And God, if there are those in this room who are not justified believers, then I pray that you would use these commands to draw them to yourself so that they can be justified. Thank you for how you have structured so great a salvation so as to maintain your justice and to justify the ungodly. I pray that you would use this word to shape our hearts, that you would uh, fill up our understanding, that you would help us to apply this uh, rightly to our hearts, and that we would leave changed today. Spirit of God, we are trusting you. We need you. We need your help. We can do nothing apart from you. And so we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In verse 1. Love your brothers, or love the brothers. It was cold this week, and some, some, one of the nights, it wasn't even Louisiana cold. It was like cold, cold. Um, we lit our first hearth fire this week. Now, I realize that might be a little too early for most of us, but uh, we were eager, we're in our new house one of like my non-negotiables, if we were going to build a house, was I want a fireplace and I want to burn wood in my house. And so we did it. Like I was excited Monday afternoon. It was like it dipped below 50 and I was like, it's fire time. We're going to do a fire. So, um, and you know what? Like that hearth fire in the center of our home, it had the exact effect that we intended. It's light and it's warmth drew all of our family together in the room. And we just wanted to be there. Like, I'm not kidding. You would walk into the room and this is, isn't he just such a boy? My, my son, John, would just be staring at the fire. Uh, one of my daughters, Annie, just laid all week on the hardwood floor right in front of the fireplace, as close as she could get to it, and just read her book on her stomach almost the whole week. It, the heat and the light drew us together. It, 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 it felt, it was this cozy feeling and everybody wanted to be there to see the fire. But what it ended up happening, what ended up happening is it drew our family together. We had a lot more time as a family in this room, sitting around, being a family. And you know what, as I think about it, like, is this not what the glory of God does for his people? God's glory radiates light and heat, and it draws his people in. And as his people are drawn towards him, like they're primarily coming for him. They're not coming for one another, but a byproduct of them all being drawn toward him is that they get drawn toward him together. The good news of Jesus knits together the hearts of a people. It makes them a family. We're adopted into his family, and we have a brotherhood, a sisterhood. We are a faith family. It unites us. He draws us to himself, and then he draws us together as he does so. And so this is the first of those fill words, Philadelphia, let brotherly love, let love of brother continue, let it remain. It's there because they're a church. 
And he is saying, do all that's in your power to continue and even increase in your brotherly affection for one another. Don't let go of it. Let it remain. And do all that you can to increase it. The Christian life is one of experiencing God's love. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's ability. We weren't able to love him rightly. We weren't able to love others rightly. But God, he first loved us. Therefore, we can love. And so we do love. We love because he first loved us. And then the Christian life is experiencing that love of God and then pushing it out to the world around us, to other people around us. And the first people in general that that's going to hit is going to be our church. It's going to be our family, yes. Lord willing, your family is part of your church, right? But this, it, it, it goes outwards, and the first place it goes is to the household of God. Just as a father's love for his children is natural, like a daddy that doesn't love his kids is the most unnatural thing. So brotherly love is the most natural thing in the world for God's family. Takes a whole bunch of rebellious self-lovers. He loves them and he makes them lovers of one another. Christ himself said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, that the distinguishing mark of a believer would be our love for one another. He says, by this, all will know that you're my disciples. What? Because you, you drive to a building and you sit and you sing songs. No, like because you wear a WWJD bracelet, people will know that you're my disciples. Because you listen, you roll up in the carpool line at school and you blare K-love, right? That's not why people will know you're his disciples. He says, they'll know, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the church's evangelism tool. It's one of them. We love each other. We, we're just in on these people that God has placed in our orbit. We're just committed and we're here. We love each other. Uh, the verse after 1 John four nineteen, surprise, surprise, is 1 John four twenty, And John will tell us there that we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brother whom we have seen. This is the distinguishing characteristic of God's people. Love for one another, brotherly love. So if we're going to endure to the end, it will, it will mean that we will endure in a love for our brothers and sisters. And, and I like to say this because I, 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 this is not this like nebulous, ethereal concept of like just loving the institution of the church. Like, look around. When you hear this, let brotherly love continue, you should be picturing specific people in your faith family. 
that you're to love. So let me ask you, what are you doing currently to nurture brotherly love in our body, in our church? Who in our body needs to experience God's love through you? Just trusting that if the Lord lays someone on your heart, you're going to be obedient to show Christ's love toward them. Let's, let's step into that. Let's let brotherly love continue. And I just want to say, um, I, am, I am proud to pastor this church um, because I, it, it just says such good things. I see this love in you for one another. Um, of course, we all have room to grow. But I praise God for the love that is in this room. And I pray that it only grows into the future. Let's, let's let it continue. The second thing that we see is to love the stranger. Love the brothers. Love the stranger. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality. That word hospitality, I'm not going to give the actual word to you. But it starts with philo. It's, it's like philo stranger. It's the, it's the word for stranger in Greek. Um, that's that word hospitality. The, the best translation, almost every, King James, CSB, NASB, like all of them, hospitality. Um, best I can remember at least. Um, but the word literally means love of strangers. He says, don't overlook the love of strangers. And the reason that he gives is that we never know precisely who it is we're serving when we serve strangers, when we love strangers. Uh, this seems like it's looking back on Abraham and Lot uh, in Genesis 18 and 19. Um, remember in Genesis 18, Yahweh and two angels, they come to Abraham's tent and then those two angels go on uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah and they go and stay in Lot's house. And Lot actually entertains these men who are angels. He takes them in, he cares for their needs, and he feeds them and he protects them. Uh, and Abraham does the same thing. And it seems as though at first they didn't perceive the nature of their guests. They were just eager as believing people to love and serve their, the stranger. They received, therefore, and showed kindness to heavenly beings. Um, God intends that the love of strangers would be a mark of his people. Um, now, the possibility of entertaining angels is, uh, is not the only reason that we should love strangers. But it is one reason, and it's the one that's given here is that we may actually end up doing a kindness to a, 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 sounds like a Hallmark movie, but an angel in disguise, right? But, and, and what I'm trying to do in every point is in some way point to the gospel as a, as a basis and a motivation for what we're to do. The love of those who are different from us, we, we might say, we might call that the love of the other someone who is not us, who's different from us, that speaks a gospel word. Because it, when we love people that we don't know 
for the Lord's sake, strangers, others, it's bearing in mind the fact that we were once strangers and that God has made us friends. And that, I'm not making that up. That's Ephesians chapter 2. So turn with me to Ephesians 2. Let me read this for you. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. And he came, Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, this is Jew and Gentile, the, one, of the, one of the greatest divides in the ancient world, Jew and Gentile. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers. So that has to mean that at one point we were strangers. If you read back in Hebrews, I mean in, in Ephesians 2 a little bit earlier, you actually says we were aliens with respect to God's promises. Um, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When we remember that we were once strangers and, and, and for the Lord's sake, we show hospitality, stranger love to strangers, we're actually speaking a gospel word to them. So Al Mohler, uh, a commentator, talks about uh, this being, I mean, maybe that beggar on the side of the road or a person in the hospital without a visitor or someone in prison. That, I mean, we don't know them. It may also be the visitor who comes in for the first time into our service, into our gathering. Right? Or the person in the coffee shop that just comes every day but sits by himself or herself. We show love towards strangers we, can I say it this way? We welcome strangers because we were strangers who were welcomed. Keep your eyes open for opportunities to show Christ's loving, kind welcome to people that you don't know. And because you don't know them, you never know who you might be serving in Christ's name. The third thing we're called to do is love the suffering. We love the brothers. We love the stranger. We love the suffering. Now, the word love is not found in Hebrews 13, 3. But the concept is most assuredly there. Remember those who are in prison. And this is talking about specifically believers who are in prison. And, he's, and you're going to see that at the end. He says, since you're also in the body. So he's assuming these in prison, those who are being mistreated, they're in the body with you. But this is like Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. You know it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We love our brothers and sisters who are persecuted and mistreated as though it were happening to us. We are, there is a solidarity among the people of God. There is an identifying with our brothers and sisters, that happens among the people of God in such a way that we almost vicariously experience their, their suffering, right? We, we, we identify with them so closely that we feel it in ourselves. And he gives the reason, since you are also in the body. 
we are all members of the same body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this great treatise of Paul on the church as the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says this. If one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And the verse before that, he talks about the members having the same care for one another. We must so deeply identify ourselves with the spiritual family the Lord has placed around us that we genuinely tether our own well-being to theirs. This is more than just seek their interests, which is also what we should do. This is actually saying that I am tying my well-being to the well-being of others in such a way that if, because we're in the same body, if they're hurting, I'm hurting too. If they're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing as well. Christ became like his people, identified with them, suffered for them, and continues with them in their suffering. He identifies with his body in the closest possible way. And so must we, even those in prison and those being mistreated. So the practical question is, well, well, what if I don't know anybody who's being mistreated and persecuted? Let me encourage you to pray for the persecuted church the world over. Because... Our experience of religious freedom is an anomaly both the world over today and historically in our world. It's a blessing for which we should thank God. And at the same time, even if we don't know it, even if we don't know them, we have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and mistreated and imprisoned falsely for the name of Christ. We should pray for the persecuted church. Why don't we pray for the persecuted church right now? Would y'all pray with me? Father, we have brothers and sisters of ours around the world who in this moment are adorning the gospel with their blood. Who are bearing in their bodies the brand marks of Jesus who are experiencing his sufferings in order that they might be raised with him on the last day. They're experiencing the same violent injustice that Jesus experienced on the cross, and they're identifying closely with him. And God, we pray that you would make them faithful unto death and that you would grant them the crown of life. Of course, Lord, we would that our brothers and sisters would be relieved of this persecution. So if that would honor you and glorify you, I pray that you would convert or kill their persecutors. But Lord, if it is your plan for them and their blood to be the seed of the church, then God, make them faithful unto death and make us faithful as well. 
Spirit of God stand with them, strengthen them, encourage them, and help them to endure. They need your help, and so do we. In Jesus' name. Remember the persecuted church. Pray for them. Identify with them in prayer. And imitate their faith. Okay. The fourth thing, the fourth love that we need to have is a love for purity. Love purity. A lot of different things, different ways we could have worded this. I decided to word it as love purity. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. My goal isn't to soften the language of that, to make it more palatable for you. What I want is for you to hear that with the full force it is meant to be heard, so that you would have this love of God's purity in your heart, because our God is morally spotless. It is important when we're talking about rightly ordered loves. It is important to understand that loving all people will not mean loving all people the same, the same way. Just as an example, you are all called to love my wife. I'm called to love my wife in special and different ways than you are. And if you try to do that, that would be weird at best and sinful at worst. Right? I mean, if you send my wife flowers on Valentine's Day, I'm going to politely ask you to meet me in the Walmart parking lot. (laughs) There are ways in which I alone am called to love her and only her. Right? There are ways that if I try to love you... They would be weird at best and sinful at worst, right? So loving all people doesn't mean loving all people the same way. Loving all people with the same intensity doesn't mean loving all people the same way. We have to have boundaries. One of those boundaries that determines the way that we love someone is called marriage, okay? There are other boundaries we can talk about. This one's called marriage, um, There are certain actions that are exclusive to marriage. And there is nothing gross or defiling about those actions when they are in the context of marriage. But those same actions, when directed towards someone else to whom one is not married, they dishonor marriage, they betray the covenant of marriage, they abuse rather than love, and they defile Um, I already talked about a fire one time. This is probably the best illustration that I've ever heard of the, the covenant of marriage and the, the intimate act uh, of consummating the marriage. Um, it's like a fire in a fireplace. In the fireplace, a fire is inviting and beautiful and very, very good. Outside of the fireplace, fire is destructive and ruinous 
and horrifying. God has given the fireplace for the sexual act, and it's called marriage. Anything outside of that, any expression outside of, and I hate that I have to word it like this, the covenant, the lifelong permanent covenant of one man and one woman, anything else is immorality. It is wrong. It is sin. It makes us idol. I mean, it makes us adulterers and immoral. And yes, it makes us idolaters too. But right. So one way that we dishonor the marriage bed, that we dishonor marriage, is defiling the marriage bed, right? Through immorality. Um, but I think. It's also really important to say in, to, to all of us, and I think it's not just this church, we all Christians need to hear this, um, honoring marriage, holding marriage in honor does not mean that we hold up marriage as an expectation for every genuine believer. If we did that, if we said that real true believers will get married, all of them will, and we're going to hold this up as the the ideal Christian life, then what we're doing is we're cutting out of the life of our church. We're cutting out Paul and Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm not prepared to cut Paul and Jesus out of the life of our church. Um. We, we can hold marriage in high regard and respect the boundaries God has placed around it. And we can work for healthy marriages for those that are married. And we can yet not idolize it to the point of saying, if you're not married, you're a second class believer. Because okay. sometimes, sometimes even tacitly, that gets just baked into the way that we talk or the way that we act, and we just can't do that. Right? So idolizing marriage dishonors it as much as defiling it through immorality. We can't do either of those things. Honoring marriage means holding it in its rightful place as a gift, an institution of God, respecting its boundaries with our hearts, minds, eyes, and bodies. And so how might we say that? It's, we strive for purity, both singles and married. We all strive for purity. Single men should not covet another man's wife. And married men should not covet another man's wife. Single women should not sleep with a man. And married women should not sleep with a man, not their husband. Single people should work for the good of the marriages and families in our body, and married people should work for the good of the singles in our body. And I don't always mean trying to set them up with somebody else. Married people, we can fold single people into the rhythms of our lives, into our, the fabric of our natural families, because they're our spiritual family. Like who knows what the Lord might do through the witness of an Uncle Joel to your kids? You know? Who knows? I want that. 
we honor marriage without defiling it on the one hand through immorality or idolizing it on the other. Jesus raises the standard for adultery um, and, he, and he, he bases it not in the actions but in the heart. Okay, Matthew 5, 28. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone, or you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's what he says in 27. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? This is not a throwing away of the law. This is a raising of the bar. Jesus is revealing the true nature of sin, that it begins in the heart with a covetous, lustful heart. And so on that standard, who among us could not rightly be called an adulterer at heart? And some of us have done worse than that. What hope do we have? But look, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God will judge them. What hope do we have? We would be righteously judged by God for sexual immorality and adultery if he chose to judge us for it. But, Hebrews 11.31, the same word for sexually immoral in Hebrews 13 is the same root that Rahab is called. Do you remember the word? It was porne. Rahab was called the porne. And here it says, God will judge the poor noose. Okay? But look, by faith, Rahab the porne, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. That's your hope. That is the hope of the sexually immoral and the adulterous and the liars and the swindlers and the revilers and anybody who's committed any other sin. It's that Christ has borne the judgment for his people. So if you've committed sexual immorality, repent and run to Christ because there is a refuge provided by God. There's a refuge for the sexually immoral and adulterous and his name is Jesus. Flee to him, run to him. And if you are fighting against a lustful temptation, let me encourage you to seek out the wise, godly help of a brother or sister. Love the brothers. You love the brothers by making yourself known, and they're going to love you by helping you know Christ more. Win, win. Be warned, though, that if you go on living a life of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness, and you're characterized by and dominated by that sin for the entirety of your life, it calls into question whether or not you truly believed this gospel. You, it's, it's possible that you remain under God's judgment. But you don't have to. Because by faith, with Rahab, who committed the same despicable deeds, you can be forgiven.
There is a refuge. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Doubtless you've heard these before, but I want to emphasize something different. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what I want to emphasize. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You don't have to stay there. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Even me. Even you. You were those things, but you don't have to be anymore by faith in Christ. This is ultimately, though, in Hebrews 13, a call to love and pursue purity for everybody. Loving purity honors marriage. When we encourage spouses to love one another rightly and exclusively, we will also be loving them the right way by guarding the purity of their bedrooms and their beds. That is love. A right ordering of our loves means we know and respect boundaries that dictate how we love certain people and how not to love them best. And the final thing that we see uh, in, in Hebrews 13 is that we ought to love God, not money. Here we meet the third of our fill words, our P-H-I-L fill words, and it's the word fill with silver, Argus, fill Argus. Uh, It sounds like just a man's name, but it's actually a word meaning a silver lover, a love of silver, which they used then to talk about a love of money. And he gives a negative and a positive command that points us in the direction of you should love God, not money. Look at what it says. Keep your life, your pa- literally keep your path free. Clear your path of the love of money, of silver love, and be content with what you have. Clear your path of the love of money. And the positive says, be content with what you have. But he gives a reason for it. That's what that word for means that comes next. For this. This is the reason for keeping your path clear of the love of money and being content with what you have. And if you think about it for a few seconds, the reasoning is astounding. It goes something like this. You should be content with what you have. Because what you have is God. For, verse 5, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have God always and forever. There is a double negative in this, in, in both of these phrases. Actually, in one of them, there's Perhaps a triple negative. Double negatives don't never work in English, right? Uh, they, the one negates the other. But in the Greek, in that language, 
double negatives intensify one another. So if you looked at this, what God says is, I will not not leave you and not, I will not not forsake you. Like that's so encouraging to me. It's like he just, he has this author double up the words to emphasize to swear by himself, I will never, no, not ever. I would never dream of leaving or forsaking my blood-bought people. You have God forever. Forever. What more do you need if you have God? You can lose everything, and if you endure to the end, you have God. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve God in money. Matthew 6, 24. I won't read it because I just quoted it. You cannot serve God in money. You're going to love the one or hate the other. Which are you going to love supremely? Remember, money is puny, weak, and an ineffectual Savior. And it will betray you. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to how money betrays you. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. Raise your hand if you want to be plunged into ruin and destruction. Raise your hand if you want to walk into a trap right now when you walk out this door. This is what is being said. Money, a love of money. If you worship money as your savior, if you love money most, it will betray you. For the short term, you may get some of the things that you want, but in the long term, it will betray you. And I am preaching as much to myself as to you right now. I need you to understand that. It says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. What a bad trade to wander away from the faith for some pieces of metal. I don't care how precious that metal is. It's not worth it. And have pierced themselves with many pangs. He has promised that his people always have him. I will not not leave you. And not I will not not forsake you. Some of the most intense language imaginable. To train our hearts to love him rather than money. To love him supremely. I would be remiss not to mention that the reason that God's people are not not forsaken is that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. If you never have a dime to your name, you have all you need because God will never abandon or forsake you. Um, and then he, he finishes this by saying, so therefore, 
we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? They can take your job. They can take your life. They can mistreat you and imprison you and utter all kinds of evil about you. But man's power is limited and God's is not. And if the Lord is on your side, there is nothing to fear. Love God supremely, not money. Uh, by way of illustrating, just as we come to the end here, uh, at, in family worship this week, we, uh, we read about Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Um, and I, I loved the way that Kevin DeYoung wrote it in his uh, The Biggest Story Bible storybook um, because he said it was 850 false prophets at one on one at one altar, and it was one man on the other. And he was like, it wasn't a fair fight because Elijah had the advantage because his God was real. Man's power is limited and God's is not. It is never a fair fight, even if it's one versus the world. If God is on your side, you have nothing to fear. So as we, can, as we close... Let us remember to love God supremely, to clear our path of the love of money, love and pursue purity, love the suffering, love the strangers, and love the brothers. This is what a well-ordered heart looks like. Things that it loves, things that it doesn't love. When we occupy ourselves with these rightly ordered loves, we will have hearts that worship and serve God with reverence and awe, and we will have hearts that endure to the end. So may the Lord help us and make it so for us and in us. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this time that you've given us together in your word. Um, where, where I and my words have fallen short and been inadequate, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would help. Um, and I pray that you would give us uh, the application of these things in our hearts that we need most. That you would encourage us draw us out of the love of money and the love of self and the love of this world and towards the supreme love of God and a self-giving love of others in all these ways, strangers and brothers and suffering and marriages. Um, God, help us. We can't do this on our own. We can't white-knuckle this. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We need your spirit to inspire this in us and to help us, to carry us along by your grace through our faith. So please, oh God, help us to walk these things out this week. Convict us that you might draw us toward repentance and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we make our turn to the table. And it is at this table that we get to walk in many different loves. A love of God, a love of our brothers, and a, a, a right, correct, biblical, rightly ordered love of self when we are submitted to God, surrendered to Him, and we are giving ourselves to others. That is the right, proper way even to approach the self. Um, We come to this table as a way of remembering and proclaiming the death of Jesus in our place. The, the bread 
is broken to signify that Jesus' body was broken instead of ours. And the cup that's filled with the crushed fruit of the vine uh, signifies, is a sign and a symbol of the fact that Jesus' blood was shed instead of ours. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this is how your forgiveness and my forgiveness was won. This is how Jesus is a refuge for his people. This is how God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's by his life, death, and resurrection. Because of that, this table is only for those who are covered by his blood, those who have repented of their sins and put their confidence and their trust fully in Jesus, who are committed and willing to walking with him in obedience and repenting of all known sin. If that describes you, you're welcome at this table. If it doesn't describe you, we urge you to take Jesus instead. And you can do that by turning from your sins and turning to him in faith. You repent and believe. I would love to pray with you if I've spoken to you about something in God's providence. I'll be down front. I would love to point you to the Lord. I'd love to encourage you. Um, Examine yourself in these moments. Ask the Lord to search your heart, to show you your sin, and then to draw you and lead you in his kindness toward repentance. Conviction can feel like death, but it's an invitation into life because repentance follows real spirit-led conviction. So I'm praying conviction for all of you, and I'm praying repentance for all of you. Examine yourself, then come, eat and drink of the table. Remember and proclaim the death of Christ in your place. As we gather at the table, we remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, help us to remember, proclaim, to remember and proclaim the death of Christ and to anticipate his return. I pray that you would deal gently and mercifully with your sheep, but that you would bring conviction in this room, real spirit-wrought, Bible-based conviction, and that you would lead us toward repentance and deeper faith. Let our observance of this table be fitting and appropriate to the great salvation it proclaims. So we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Table's open.
we will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood. took bread when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you
do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. He says, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I am going to let our prayer for the persecuted church today serve as our missions moment as well. So I'm just going to move us into a time of announcements because we have quite a few announcements to get through this morning. Excuse me. Uh, Wednesday night, this Wednesday, I believe that's November the 8th at 6.30. The men will gather at Kevin Williams' house, Myrtlewood Manor. And we will have our men's gathering. We will, uh, we're going to eat... I've been told bar and pub food. And as a preacher, I don't know what that is. I don't even know what a pub is. Sure is. I'm being honest about it. Uh, No. Food's not drinks. That's what we're saying here. Because, I'm just kidding. Uh, Bar bar finger foods. They would serve like in a bar in a pub. Uh, Yeah. We we need to rebrand that somehow. Uh, It's like Applebee's. Applebee's foods. If they serve it at Applebee's, you can bring it. Uh, okay. Uh, second, this Friday and Saturday, November the 10th and 11th. Is that right? Yes, November 10th and 11th. Uh, we're having a men's retreat. And any man can still sign up for the men's retreat. It's good. We're just going to leave late-ish Friday afternoon. We're driving to Baton Rouge. We're going to eat together at the Airbnb that we're all staying at. Uh, And we're going to, I think that Dean and James are going to make spaghetti for us. Then we're going to play top golf that evening. And then we're going to come back. And I'm sure I will probably go to bed. But there are some crazies in our church who are probably going to sit up and play board games all night, which is fine. You you know, live your life. Uh, I'm just, I'm coming back home the next day and I need sleep. So, uh, But then the next morning, we're going to wake up. You'll get some quiet time for yourself. And then we'll have a study and worship time together. And then we'll break for lunch. And then everybody will just kind of make their way back. So you'll be home Saturday, early-ish afternoon, mid-afternoon or so. You should still be in plenty of time to watch the the Tigers get beat. I don't know who they're playing. Um, I know, that's dangerous words. My team is three and seven. It doesn't matter. Um, Then... uh, so after, so I'm just going in chronological order. So next Sunday, the 12th, after service, the elders have called a, a family meeting. So this is for all of our members. Um, we're going to we're going to present something to the membership on that day. Um, so we are asking everybody. I know it's short notice. We're asking everybody to be to make every effort to be here November the 12th, right after service. Um, That next Wednesday, November the 15th, will be our ladies' gathering. The location is still to be determined. It'll happen at 6. And then November the 19th at 4 p.m. at Dean and Catherine's house, we are having our fall potluck, uh, sort of Friendsgiving 
It's kind of what we're calling it. Uh, number six, I'm going to read the text that was sent to me so that I don't miss any details here. Just bear with me. We are going to be filling gift bags for the people we are serving in Manor House for this Thanksgiving. We are asking each family in the church to fill two bags with non-perishable foods, a few cleaning supplies, and some personal hygiene products. Please use reusable bags, so like just like the canvas reusable bags. If you'll fill two of those up and bring them and drop them off at church, um, we're, we're going to give them out around the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, which Manor House will be operating on the on that Thursday and on Black Friday. Like we don't we don't take holiday breaks from Manor House. We just keep doing it because hunger still happens on Thanksgiving. Um, so lots of people ride bikes to the church building and a reusable bag will be helpful for them. So if you have any questions about that, you can let Olivia Littleton know uh, and she can give you more details. We're asking that everybody would have those bags by November the 19th, by that Sunday, so that the next week they can give them out. So you've got about three weeks, two weeks or so, I guess two weeks from today, to get those bags together. Um, yep, uh, one more time, non-perishable foods, a few cleaning supplies, and some personal hygiene products. Um, and then, December 9th, at 10.30 a.m., there is a baby shower for Emily Mullins. Are we, are we having a baby? Uh, at Olivia Littleton's house, 10.30 on December the 9th. Uh, you can see her, you can see Olivia for more details about that. We're, I'll just say, we're, we're registered at christianbook.com. So if you want to buy us, like, I'll just buy books instead of baby supplies. Is that okay? No? Okay. All right. All right. Zach, I just want you to keep talking. I just want to see what kind of trouble you can get into. <laughs> All right. Can we stand together as we dismiss? We're going to, uh, we've been in, in the... The Ten Commandments for the past couple of weeks in our New City Catechism. And so this is, we're in 9 and 10 this week, the last two. So here's the question, and then as it's on the screen, let's say the answer out loud together. What does God require in the Ninth and Ten Commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content not envying anyone are presenting what God has given them for us. So in light of what we just read in Hebrews 13, let's take those words to heart this week. We love you.